Well, good morning. This morning we are in Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. And we say together, the grass withers and the flowers falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What we see in Psalm 115 is an author of scripture who gets his priorities exactly correct. He's starting with glory because something amazing has just happened to Israel. Israel here has just returned from exile. They have come back to their land. Their exile is over, and it isn't something that they planned. It isn't something that they strategized or plotted. God arranged it so that the king of Babylon, who put them in exile, decided to send them back to their land, which is shocking. And if you want to read more about this, it's in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so we begin in this wonderful place, that God should receive the glory for what he just did. And remember, glory is not an exercise in selfishness for God. Glory refers to the weighty things in the universe, the things that are worth the most. The truly glorious things crowd out all the other things. They sort of pull us into their orbit. And so for God to receive the glory is proper and good. The reason anything exists is because he wants it to. In him, we all live and breathe and have our being. God is the weightiest thing around. And so it is natural for us to give him the glory. In fact, it would be foolish and ignorant for us not to give him the glory. The good news for us is that God will get the glory. His timeline for creation is for everything to aim toward his own glory. This includes all things visible and invisible. So he receives this glory now from all who dwell in heaven. He receives it now from all who are already dead in Christ. He receives it now from all who profess his faith in this age. He will receive it in the coming age, 
from every tribe and tongue and nation when he comes back. So he does not need our help to make this happen. He does not need us to threaten the nations into proper worship or to manipulate them into it. This is one of the most abundantly clear declarations in scripture that God will receive his glory. Job said it like this, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. In Isaiah, God says, why should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Jesus said, the son of man is going to come in glory and all the angels with him and he will sit on his throne of glory and the nations will gather before him. Paul said, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. And in Revelation, we will sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed. So the nations are going to ask a question in verse two. The question is, where is your God? This question will be definitively answered at the end of all things when all flesh says, ah, now I see your God coming on the clouds with glory. And so in verse one, the jealousy is aimed in the right direction that God deserves the attention and the worship and the obedience of everything that he has made. So we start in a good place and yet Verse two questions what verse one has declared. Why should the nation say, where is their God? This psalm is probably uh, a response to taunting, to mockery. See, when the Israelites were in exile away from Israel, away from their land, a mixture of other people, other nations, had been sent to live in Israel by the Babylonian king. And this was a pretty common strategy in the ancient Near East. And it was to make a people forget their customs, forget their, <coughs> their land, uh, forget what they were used to. And it, it really cut down on revolts and revolutions. And so Israel returns and once again picks up the worship of their God, Yahweh, and their new neighbors begin to mock them and begin to taunt them. And they taunt them with a very specific question. Where is your God? So we, we don't see your God. Does he not help you? And this question, where is your God, isn't a, actually a figurative question. It's a literal question. Uh, and it comes from the fact that the Lord had no statue to represent his presence on earth. So they're saying your God is invisible to us. We see no idols, we see no statues, we see no monuments. The only evidence that you even worship a God is some altars uh, strewn about, but we don't know what your God looks like. You must be new at this religion thing. And so, hey, Israelites, let us help you out. Let us help you connect the dots. The reason that you're so small and so weak is because your God is fake. A real God would have a real image. Well, now we have a theological fight on our hands. 
And so the psalmist here is going to fight in two ways. He's going to play offense and defense. So first he's going to defend God from this criticism, and then he will critique the nature and character of the other gods. So he starts with defense. In verse three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This is a pretty strong opening punch. See, in every direction from Israel, all the gods of the ancient Near East were tethered, bound to their physical forms. To serve and to worship a god meant that you could manipulate that god. You put in the right inputs, the right words, the right rituals onto the statue, and then you get the outputs that you wanted in your life. It worked like a religious vending machine. So if you want rain, find the rain god and do the right things. You want better crops, stronger armies, more children, prettier spouses, you just pick the right God and you perform the right rituals. And so these nations in verse two couldn't see a physical form for Yahweh, for Israel's God. There's no statues, no paintings, because God has forbidden these in the second commandment. No evidence to them that Yahweh was helping them at any moment. And so they taunt. Maybe if you had done religion correctly, you wouldn't have gone to exile in the first place. Not only were these gods tethered to their physical forms, they were also tethered to physical regions. And so the psalmist says, our God dwells in the heavens, not on any particular mountain or any particular region. He owns all the mountains and he is not confined or bound to them. Our God is not a Tesla, with a maximum range. He's not controlled by anything that happens on the earth. He does exactly as he pleases. He's not even constrained by what we want or our rituals. We cannot manipulate our God through cause and effect. And this is both wonderful for us because his character is good, but it's also terribly inconvenient for us uh, because when we want to treat our God like a vending machine, what we get is a very unreliable vending machine. And often we try to pay for happiness and we get holiness instead. He will not let us treat him like an idol. Well, he goes from verse three, defense, to offense in verse four and says, okay, let's talk about your idols. If you wanna have a fight, Let's talk about how you got your idols. Verse four, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. How'd you get them? Well, you made them. And when you made them, you made them in your image. You made them exactly as you would prefer. And so when you felt weak and you felt insecure, you made and imagined a strong God that would make up for what you lack. And when you felt insignificant, you made a God that answers to you. About 500 years ago, John Calvin threw shade on these idols. He asks, for can there be anything more absurd than to expect assistance from them? 
since neither the materials of which they are formed nor the form which is given to them by the hand of men possess even the smallest amount of divinity. So best case scenario, you all worship amplified versions of yourself, whatever you wish that you were. Worst case scenario, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10, you worship the demons behind the idols. Either way, it's not going to go well for you. And what's it like to worship these blind and deaf and dumb idols? Well, the experience is that you end up riding uh, like one of those pirate ships at the amusement park. A pendulum uh, of satisfaction on one height uh, and confusion and despair on the other. And so when good things happen, we thank our statue. And when bad things happen, we get confused and wonder what we did wrong. Maybe our word wasn't right. Maybe we sang the wrong songs. But this is what happens when you build body parts into your statues, like mouths and ears and hands. They end up being more useless than the people who made them. This is not good theology here. Uh, Augustine once said that even a dead man is closer to life than one of these statues. At least he once lived. And so the diagnostic question, not only for these nations, but also for us is, are you being blessed by what you worship? Can your God, whatever you worship, can he bear you up? Can your God carry you or must you carry your lifeless God? This is the question that God himself asks in Isaiah 46. You can turn there if you want. I'll read from it. God is speaking. He says, to whom, in verse five, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now, God contrasts this back up to verse three in the same chapter, Isaiah 46. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your youth Carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and save. These are our options. Either you will carry your idols or God will carry you. And these idols will carry you to the grave because they cannot save. They cannot rescue you. They cannot return you from exile. They cannot become flesh and dwell among us. They cannot prepare a place for us in our Father's house. They cannot keep us from falling. And at the end of all things, they will not stand upon the earth robed in glory. And if you serve them, you will receive a curse. In verse 8, 
Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. See, worshiping a blind idol causes you to become blind. You will lose your faculties. You will have eyes that will no longer see the goodness of God. You will have ears that will no longer comprehend his word. You have mouths that can no longer praise him and hands that do evil. So those who enter this foolish system of idolatry push themselves farther and farther away from the God that they are designed to image. We are literally stamped into the image of God. And over time, worshiping an idol makes you less responsive, less affected, and less capable of worship. And we will become as lifeless as the idols that we make. There are a few lines in scripture that keep me up at night. Uh, One of them is Jesus's question, when the son of man returns, will he find faith on earth? And, And another one is right here in verse eight, that those who make them become like them. And it's terrifying because it foreshadows a possible outcome for all of us. Romans one talks more about what happens if God does not interrupt this process of idolatry in our lives. And what Paul says is that eventually God gave them up. That God gives them up to serve the idols completely. And this is why we must always be examining ourselves, examining our motives and our thoughts and our words, conducting little spiritual audits of ourselves. Here's one way that can go. Compared to five years ago, do I look more like my favorite idols or do I look more like Jesus? Now, it's important that you compare yourself to yourself, not to other people. And use the fruits of the Spirit. Compared to myself five years ago, am I more gentle? Am I more kind? Am I more patient? Or do I look more like the idols that I want to serve? Sometimes this is difficult because we, in the modern West, often recoil against the language of idolatry. And we say things or think things like, I'm so glad that we are too sophisticated to construct and carve statues to worship them. We would never do that. We would never make an idol. But the idols of the ancient world did not disappear. They only changed their forms. Here are some idols that scripture warns us not to make and not to worship. Silver, wood, gold, or stone, our own bellies, money, family idols, Vanity, terrors, shameful things, filth, and impurity. Are we really free from these things? Have I not asked my money to save me? Have you not treated your checking account as the answer to your problems? See, the mark of an idol is not its form, it's its function. 
What are you asking this thing in your life to do for you? What are you asking your money to do? What are you asking your family or your spouse to do for you? Am I trying to produce my own security through this thing? Am I trying to be significant because of this thing? Or am I secure because nothing can snatch me out of my father's hand? And am I significant because I'm adopted into the family of the king? To make it even harder, the voices that mocked Israel still mock us. They're a little updated, but they still ask, where is your God? So in, in ancient Israel, the mockery was based on a perceived lack of strength. If Yahweh is so great, why were you exiled? Why didn't you have power to take back your own land? Why are you so small in number? Updated, these taunts are alive and well. Where is your God when? Christians, where is your God when disease and death come into your family? Where is your God when tragedy comes into the life of a Christian? And sometimes this taunting is very effective and it works. And we may be tempted into despair when our God doesn't perform. When the healing doesn't come, when we feel weak and we feel like the promises of God will not come true. We are tempted to walk away, to wander, and to worship something else. And when we do that, Psalm 115 yells at us and reminds us, you have stopped being reasonable. Your faculties are affected. Why would you leave the true and living God? Why would you think in patterns that are as dumb and are as empty as the idols that you see? We would just be worshiping something weaker and stupider and worse. And Jesus' disciples sort of stumbled into this truth in John 6. Jesus had just warned them uh, that the path of following him would be very, very difficult. And he sort of says, hey, if you want to leave, you, you can, there's the door. And Peter says, Peter answers him like this, Lord, to whom would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. If we left you, it would just be to follow something worse, less glorious than you. So if it would be foolish to run from God, what do we do? Verses 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The remedy is to trust. Trust Israel. Trust house of Aaron. Trust all who fear the Lord. He doesn't want to leave anyone out. Israelites, the priestly line of Aaron, and anyone else who might be in the congregation. Trusting God is for everyone, not just for the professionals. The warning here is to give glory and to trust rather than to construct other gods or to manipulate a God in our image. See, our God has a plan. Don't get short-sighted about the plans of God. 
Sometimes we are very concerned with God's particular plan for our own lives. And we want to know what it is. What is the will of God for my life? Uh, And that's valuable, sure. But don't get short-sighted. Remember that God has a plan for everything. He has an eternal and cosmic plan. And his plan involves the humiliation and removal of all of our enemies, including Satan, sin, and death. And beginning with the resurrection, we are seeing this plan play out in real time. How can we not trust him? How can we keep this larger plan in our minds every morning? To trust God is is not an abstract calling. It's just to live like this is true. Live like it's true that God's victory is playing out in real time. Ultimately, the conclusion here is that Israel does not need these other gods. Verse 12 and 13, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Israel doesn't need the other gods because their God will be their help and shield. Their God will be their ally. How many times does Israel need to see that God rescues them from the Egyptians, from the Amalekites, from the Midianites? The the scriptures are full of God rescuing his people. And if there's one thing that they shouldn't ever be confused about, it's that their help comes from the Lord. And he will bless us. This trust that we have leads to blessings. Now, these blessings may not return our circumstances back to Eden. Things may not be perfect when he blesses us. God may set a table for us in the presence of our enemies and not in the presence of our friends. But we will be blessed. Right now in this psalm, Israel is being blessed in the presence of their snarky neighbors, mocking and taunting, but they are still blessed. And if verse one is true, and I think that it is, uh, then God does not need to be manipulated into blessing us. He wants to bless us. His character is such that steadfast love and faithfulness pours out. See, verse three could be a chilling statement that leaves all of us in despair if we substitute other gods there. Instead, Instead of saying our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases, what if it was true that Molech is in the heavens doing all that he pleases, or Baal, or Ra, or any of the other idols and gods? As an example, in ancient Mesopotamia, the Sabbath day was a day when all the people hid in their houses and lit no candles. Because the Sabbath day was a day when their God went to war. And you did not want to catch his eye or draw his attention when he's on the war path. And so they hid. But it's not those gods in the heavens doing what they please. It is our God. And our God, in verse 1, shows us steadfast love and faithfulness. He does all that he pleases. 
What does it please our God to do? We said it together already in our profession of faith, that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why? So that in Jesus Christ, God could rescue and redeem. Back in this Psalm, Israel saw this love and faithfulness. God did not leave them in exile. He restored them to the land, just like he promised. And then later, God would send his son Jesus, just as he promised, so that he could bear their sin in his death and give them his own righteousness. And he would do all this while the nations mocked and taunted him. Why? To bring many sons into the glory of his father. And that's how it ends for us. God gets the glory and we get God. I wanna end with a quick quote from, uh, from a commentary by Derek Kidner. He says this, a God too great to tie down to any image who is not the prisoner of circumstances, but their master is a God to glory in. And he is our God, not in the petty sense in which the pagans have their idols, but in the personal bond of steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please root out the idols in our lives. Make us a people fit for your kingdom who do not stumble in our trust. Help us not to look for your blessings in created things and give us the rest that can only come from belonging to a king. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to look for his return in glory when he will set all things right. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.